Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the Christopher Guest mockumentary, Waiting for Guffman. I almost filled in Waiting for Godot in my head because it's just so filled in. Right, which is a very intentional uh, play on words for the title of this film. Because if, in case you missed it, Waiting for Guffman is Waiting for Godot, if Godot was a theater critic, because this movie is just a small town group of amateur actors putting on a play and waiting for a famous New York theater critic who, like the show Waiting for Godot, never actually shows up. And that's all that happens? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, so, like, we're going to be talking kind of about a wide variety of things, I suspect, this episode. but Oh, are we? Well, well, because this is the first mockumentary we've seen for cult fiction for cult fiction right this this isn't even the first christopher guest film i've shown you in like off hours but and that's why i was so tentative about this movie but i agreed because it's about theater and if you're gonna get me into something just tell me it's about community theater however it's entirely fucking improv and that comes with it being entirely improv yeah a little bit of inside baseball i never knew this i've seen waiting for guffman before like my freshman year of high school neither of us knew this until literally two minutes before recording as i saw in imdb that like the only thing in this movie that was actually scripted was the musical number the single musical number that is in the the show within a show the play within the movie And everything else in this film is completely improvised. Well, it is like that trope. How are you going to get a musical to just randomly happen? They had to script that part. Oh, absolutely. There's a school of thought that musical improv is like a thing to do. And back when I did improv in college, that was like the one class where I was like, I'm I'm not following on this one. It is, it is, I respect anybody that can actually do like good musical improv. I feel like that's the closest it must feel to mentally sharing a brain because you have to just be so on sync with your fellow actors where it's like, we're going to be in this key or we're going to harmonize at this point and we're just going to do it off the top of our heads. No, no. No, absolutely not. (laughs) That's not a thing. That is not a thing. But what is a thing is the ability to, like, create a bit and create, like, a shared, oh, oh, we're going to do a thing and it's going to be really funny. Which I would argue does happen a lot in this movie. Sure. I want to know how much of it was Catherine O'Hara's bangs on crack. Oh, that seems very much like... She came in one day and told the, like, stylist, hey, make my bangs insane. And it was, like, the second day of filming, and they saw it, and everybody loved it, and was like, okay, more, 
more, more, more, more every day. Catherine's things get bigger because that's what it feels like. It's like it starts kind of. Okay, her bangs are standing straight up and then they're to the side. Yeah. No, but throughout the movie, they get bigger and bigger and bigger until she has like a reverse beaver. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Catherine O'Hara, it makes me think of, um, we talked about how this is the first mockumentary we've seen for cult fiction. It's not the first Christopher Guest mockumentary because this is kind of what this guy does as a director. For those of you who don't know and aren't familiar with the name, Christopher Guest is Count Rugal, the six-fingered man in Princess Bride. He's Nigel Tufnell, the lead guitarist of Spinal Tap. He, he is an actor in his own right, but has made a second career in filmmaking as a director. And it specifically like has... Kind of in the same way for a long time Kevin Smith was making a hyper-specific style of movie. Sure. Christopher Guest really, really, really loves making these uh, half-improv, or in this case mostly improv, mockumentary films with the same collection of people. So it's kind of a lot through this movie I started thinking a lot about Wes Anderson. Sure. It's kind of like Wes Anderson because you showed me on our off hours, as you put it, <laughs> um, the dog movie. Isle of Dogs. No. I mean, yes, you also showed me that. But you showed Ooh, me the, the dog, dog movie. judging movie by Christopher Guest. Oh, you're talking of Best in Show. Yes. Yes. Okay. You know, the one about the dog. You said Wes Anderson and then dog movie. You know what? That's, that's on me. That is fair. Which we've also watched just on like... <laughs> A Friday night because we wanted to watch that movie. Which is fair and good. However, you showed me Best in Show and also in that movie was Catherine O'Hara. Also in that movie was David Cross. Also in that movie was Levy. Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy. Thank you. Yeah, Eugene Levy, Fred Willard, uh, Parker Posey. I love her. um, Bob Balaban. Christopher Guest, of course, because he stars in all of these. There's, there's, there's more who I like can't think of off the top of my head, but there is like a just troop of people who have so much fun making these films. Which, of course, how could you not? And just every time Christopher Guest calls them up, he's they say yes, of course, I will take a part in your film. I don't care how small it is. Let me come make the funny. So Parker Posey is to Christopher Guest as Bill Murray is to Wes Anderson. Yes. Okay. Which is the perfect Wes Anderson person to call out because did you notice in Waiting for Guffman, there is a scene at a mechanics where Christopher Guest is trying yes. to recruit a, 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 a attractive leading man type. And his boss walks up and, like, gives funny looks and is, like, clearly very uncomfortable. Yes. Did you know that is Bill Murray's honest-to-God brother? I did not know it was Bill Murray's brother. I thought it was actual Bill Murray with just some face changes because it looks so much like Bill Murray. (laughs) Which, yeah, absolutely. And that would be a very Bill Murray thing to do, to just come do a silent cameo in your film. (laughs) Here, just change my nose a bit. No one will know. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I only know this because somebody told it to me the first time I saw this, but Bill Murray's brother, 
who is just like kind of in a couple of these, Brian Murray, um, just just randomly in there. And he's only in one scene, which is the weirdest part for me. But the character of the aggressively attractive male lead's father mm. looms large over the movie because he is the reason that the male actor has to drop out because he has to work. Right. And his he works for his dad, but also his dad makes so much of a presence in that scene of like, I don't I don't approve of this theater shit. Seems a little fruity to me. Like, he doesn't say any of this, but that is how he comes across. You read it on your face, especially with Corky St. Clair, the delightfully, ambiguously, non-ambiguous, like, person that Christopher Guest (laughs) plays. Very much coming on to the, the young actor. I want to talk about Corky. Can we talk about Corky? We absolutely can. I think Corky Sinclair is probably the thing people think of most when they think of this film. So I have an anecdote. Can I share an anecdote for you? Always. For our listeners who haven't seen the movie, once upon a time I was in a steak and shake, which is a particular franchise Specifically in Florida, I think there are also some in Georgia, and then there are a lot in the Midwest, where theater children in high school go after a show because it's open 24 hours, and you get burgers, and you get fries, and you get milkshakes because you don't have to think about your metabolism. You're 17. And you go at like two in the morning and you're still in your costume and your stage makeup is running down your face, but it's fine because there's a pretty boy across the table and you have a crush on him and maybe he stares at you a lot. And so this is what happens at Stick and Shake. One time I was at Stick and Shake on a date with Alex, completely unrelated (laughs) to being in theater. Sure. And we watched a director of said high school stage children almost smack a steak and shake waitress in the fucking face because he was doing an elaborate bow. Oh dear. For his high school theater school children. And that is the energy that Corky St. Clair has. Me, you know, right out of the Navy, you know, fresh off a destroyer uh, with a dance belt and a tube of chapstick, basically, you know, not really much to call my own. And then basically being slammed down for 10 or so years, you know, off, 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 off Broadway. Almost accidentally hitting a person in the service industry because you're so like mentally preoccupied with doing an incredibly elaborate showy thing just to celebrate you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for boiling my anecdote down into five words. Well, no, because I, I think that is like that. That is perfectly quirky. Yes. Like the thing is to just tie up the the actor part. So the lead actor, whose whose name we don't remember, and is one of the few actors who, like, I don't think really goes on and has a career after this. So mm-hmm. I don't feel bad just completely forgetting about the character. Drops out of the show on opening night, which leads to Corky doing the theater thing of like. Well, I'm the director. I know his lines. I guess I'll have to do it. (laughs) And playing the young romantic lead when he's a, like, 50-something 
pudgy, flamboyant man. Right, because they never establish that he's gay. They never establish that he's gay. The most they do, Corky has a couple of bits where he's very clearly checking out a male presence. And Corky has like a couple of throwaway lines about a wife who you never see. There's a part there's there's a part where the cast goes to Corky's home to like try and convince him not to quit as the director and you never see a wife. You, you just find Corky in the bath. And um, one of the characters in the film is like, I guess that's why I never see his wife as to like trying to think through something. Mm-hmm. It is the most like it, very clearly a bit of like, well, okay, Corky is clearly that New York off-Broadway gay but we're never even going to make a punchline about it. And the fact that we're never going to make a punchline about it is the punchline we're making about it. Right. Which I guess isn't how this aged poorly. (laughs) I have to do the double negative in my head. I'm like, is this how it aged bad? I can't quite figure it out. And I guess, I guess I got to lean on. It didn't, it didn't age poorly for that. No, but it aged poorly for lots of other things. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, like what? Like Eugene Levy's very oh my awkward God. right Native American. He has this bit where he makes like Peter Pan in the 1960s yeah. level dialect of a Native American person. Well, I think he says he's like doing a Johnny Carson bit, which... I don't think either of us were ever old enough to be watching Johnny Carson. I don't know. You consistently make comments on this podcast about how old the 80s are, which is the decade I was born in. So There's like, okay, I'm not getting into this. I would say not consistently. (laughs) I've put my foot in my mouth a couple of times. (laughs) I win. He's doing the Carson bit, and I don't know if Carson had a racist Native American bit or if Eugene Levy is doing a racist Native American bit and saying it's a Carson bit. Like, it's it's the kind of thing where I, I remember this as soon as you said it, but in the moment, I, it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, they very clearly know that this is racist and, like, the fact that it's so cringeworthy and racist and you have Eugene Levy doing this, there's no way they didn't know. So does that... Does the intention make it age poorly or did the fact that they did it anyway still make it age poorly? You have to do that improv math where you're like, what is the intent? And then you go into like um, deconstructionism (laughs) where you have to feel out the sense of the author's intent. I mean, if that's not what we do on this show in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, no. I hope we're not deconstructionist. <laughs> but I will say this whole thing, if that wasn't it aging poorly, that was the height of cringe humor in this. And there sure. is so much cringe humor in this. Like the office, the British office is easier to watch than this. Yes, absolutely. And that is like, that is the other thing that the Christopher Guest mockumentaries are known for is just creating these incredibly awkward, cringy on purpose. The Office is the perfect comparable because 
The Office. The Office is basically a Christopher Guest mockumentary made into you know a seven season, thirteen season, however many seasons, TV show. But it's that's it is that exact kind of humor, which you either just eat up and you think it's the funniest thing and you love it, or you you cringe out of your skin from the word go and you cannot stand it. It's just, it's a lot because here's the thing. It's because the entire script is improv. I have a little bit more time for it, Mm. but it's also because of that. There's, there's little to no review of what's being said. It's just built on. And so it just gets more and more and more and more and more cringy. Sure. Throughout the movie where you're just, by the end of it, you're like, I hate it. It's so uncomfortable. And and there are so many things like that. There's, um, you know, we have Fred Willard is in this film. He's another one of the the gang who's in all the Christopher Guest movies. It's weird to see him with brown hair. He plays Catherine O'Hara's husband, and together they're like the two people in town who are the community theater stars. Where community it's, theater. They're in, spirit hands. They're in every show. It's all but guaranteed that they're going to be in the play and be the best ones in the play. And Fred Willard's character does a bit where he, like, Fred Willard does a bit where his character is just such an incredible, like, that passive-aggressive douchebag, specifically to Eugene Levy's character, like, constantly insulting him, but then laughing and smacking his arm and being like, right, buddy? (laughs) And I hate it, and it's the worst, and, like, I don't enjoy it, but knowing they did it on purpose at least makes me understand it. Well, and also, he's... He and Catherine O'Hara, as as the community theater couple, he's giving her notes. And so there's one part where he says, I mean, I just I just coach her because she has these really bad instincts. And you can almost see Catherine O'Hara's brain break a little where she's like, I have to fucking yes and that. Right. And even in character, she's like, well, I don't know, you say they're notes for both of us, and it winds up being like two hours of notes for me. (laughs) And I'm so grateful for it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go on to be America's mom and home alone. What time is it? What time is it? Haven't you been paying attention? It's midnight at the Oasis. You know? Yeah. Is oh, this after? I think this, this is, is after Home Alone. After Home this Alone. This is 96. God damn it. Well, if you had to pick someone to hang out with in this movie, who would you hang out with? I would hang out with Parker Posey. That is and, the only correct yeah, answer. Yeah, that is the only correct answer. <laughs> keeping her company at her Dairy Queen shifts. <laughs> which you want to talk about improv, just her choice to do this whole like, I'm just going to chew my gum as loud as possible. And take way too long to say something super simplistic and, like, kind of have nothing going on. But I'm also, like, a 19-year-old, so it's clearly the only thing anybody could care about. Perfect choice. Perfect, absolute, like, Parker Posey is a delight in this film. And in every film 
of these that I've seen her in, except for Best in Show, where she is like, she is the hardest thing to watch in Best in Show. Why do you say that? Oh, because Parker Posey in Best in Show is the character who, her and and one of the other actors play this incredibly neurotic couple who are like hyper obsessed with their dog's like mental state of mind. And they're the ones who like have sex in front of the dog and then become convinced that they've given it depression. And later on in the film, like lose the dog's toy and get into the screaming match. It's, it's so hard to watch her in best in show, but she's delightful in waiting for Guffman. Oh, you mean the character that I identified with in best of show. Yeah, I thought it was only occasionally I put my foot in my mouth, but it turns out it is all the time. You are right. <laughs> I will say, two years after this, Parker Posey would go on to be in You've Got Mail as Tom Hanks's like, live-in girlfriend. <laughs> and the juxtaposition between these two roles is massive and is very entertaining for me. Oh, without a doubt. No, Parker Posey is like a delightful actor who gives like incredibly nuanced performances heck i mean all of them are but like she's the one who breaks out the most from comedy i feel like yeah like blade three is not a good movie but she gets to be an evil vampire in it and plays that well that sounds so dope it's very dope and very dumb (laughs) the only other opportunity for who you hang out with in the show has to be corky because you know that corky's at the bar being like Oh, one of vodka cranberry. Get me seven of them. Corky's at the bar, and you're just at like a regular bar, and somehow Corky starts karaoke night. And there is no karaoke night at this establishment. There never has been. But he like he finds the PA system and like walks on stage drunkenly and like <laughs> starts karaoke night. That is Corky. Corky starts the tradition of drunk boys in the bathroom. Yes, absolutely. Oh my god, I love your shoes. Your <laughs> shoes are so perfect. Oh my god, I'm going to put you in my next movie because you have a perfect face. Now, do you want to do some coke? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Come star with me in Barefoot in the Park and my production of Barefoot and The fact that they name-dropped Barefoot in the Park is just like a casual thing. I was like... You know that Christopher Guest was like, here's the one show that I know of that I can pluck from the air. <laughs> well, it's so great because it worked perfectly because we're watching this movie. They name drop Barefoot in the Park and you're like, oh, I wanted to put on Barefoot in the Park. I love that show so much. I love it so... I very rarely miss theater, but I would do Barefoot in the Park. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I would quit my current day job um so this is cult so this is one of those films I've, I've talked about how there's there is a christopher guest verse yes there is an entire world Theoretically, all of these films happen in the same world, although I don't think there's ever been any character overlap or anything like that. They're not interested with those kind of Easter eggs. But there is an entire long extended movie marathons worth of these kinds of films. 
And I think because of that, it is cult. Sure. Like, I, I, I mentioned I see, I've see i seen this film once before my freshman year of high school. That was because a senior who was in the um, drama department, like, we had, like, a movie night at somebody's house. And this person was like, no, 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 you guys, you don't understand. You have to watch this. It'll change the way you think about comedy. It'll change the way you think about theater. It's brilliant. <laughs> And introduce me to this entire concept. I'm just thinking about the whole babies and tires thing. <laughs> it's just randomly a line they plop in there, but like because it's improv and two people say it twice at once. Right. Is very impressive. And I can see this being a favorite movie of a high school theater person especially someone who's trying to be oh i'm contrarian yeah because this is the first of these christopher guest mockumentaries oh, yeah he was okay. in spinal tap but that was directed by rob reiner and i'm personally convinced that's what gave christopher guest the like inspiration to do this and Waiting for Guthman is like the one he kind of cut his teeth on and figured out how to do that. Because next he did like A Mighty Wind, which is about like a country music band. And then Best in Show, which is the biggest one. like The dog movie. It's the dog movie. It's the movie that plays at 2 o'clock on Comedy Central for like 10 years in a row. Like... Uh, okay. It has... It, that is like the pinnacle one. Um, and the most recent one I know he's done, I actually really enjoyed it. It was straight to, um, straight to Netflix, but it was mascots and it's, it's the same thing. He kind of just does the same thing in like a Mad Lib kind of way where he keeps erasing community theater and types in country music band and then erases that and then does dog show and then erases that and is like, mascot competition and people go that one's really like dog show christopher guest and he goes yeah but i'm gonna have parker posey play an armadillo woman <laughs> so do you know the tumblr joke <laughs> me referencing a decades old social media but um that john green writes the same novel and does a mad lib <laughs> <laughs> I was not, but I, I understand immediately what you're saying. It's the same thing with Christopher Guest, and now I'm imagining John Green and Christopher Guest sitting there flipping open their Mad Libs and going, okay, 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 give me a noun. Oh, that is a, like, that is a cocktail lounge I want to hang out in. I don't think they're in a cocktail lounge. I think they're in, like, their mother's basement. Oh, fair enough, maybe. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hank's like, do you guys need anything? Beers? Some Xanax? Oh, Hank calling down the stairs is like really dear to me. <laughs> <laughs> some some emotional support animals. <laughs> I can see it. I can absolutely see it. I just need you to know that in my notes I wrote, is it cult? If this isn't cult, dot, 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 dot. Because this is the most cult thing I think we've done in a minute. Certainly more cult than, like, Excalibur or the Blues Brothers. Which is saying something. It's it's cult in that way of, like, somebody out there says this is their favorite film and shows it to all the high school freshmen and thinks fondly of it. 
This is the movie that in the back of my mouth tastes like stale bits of popcorn that you would find at the bottom of the bowl. <laughs> oh, no. And like a really old tweed couch. And it evokes... Do you know that scene in I'm Not Okay With This where they have sex in his basement? Yes. That's what this movie is. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's just... It is the beloved movie of some kid who's living in his family's basement where they're just like, oh, that's Jeffrey. We call him up when it's dinner time and otherwise we don't see him. And like... If this isn't the father of modern day cringe humor, it's at least like one of the, this walked so that Tim Robinson's I Think You Should Leave could run. And I hate that show. <laughs> it is far too cringe humor for me, but everyone else I've ever talked to loves it. Do you know who has gone on record saying that this movie is their favorite movie? Who's that? Meryl fucking Street. <laughs> Which, oh my god, I I did not know that until I think thirty seconds ago. But that is that that, that breaks your brain, right? Because you're thinking like one of the greatest actor actors of our time, Meryl motherfucking Streep, who loves waiting for Guffman more than anything on the planet. And I'll tell you why I can't put up with you people, because you're bastard people. That's what you are, you're just bastard people and I'm going home and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bite my pillow is what I'm gonna do. Well, just like Meryl Streep, famous for like telling Francis Ford Coppola to get fucked and loving the great John Cazale and like being, being the New York ideal actor, Meryl Streep, just kind of puts on her her comfy slippers and like turns her brain off and watches this and goes, Haha, this is awesome. She has had 25 Oscar nominations over all time. And the same people who like want highbrow humor. Uh Highbrow humor that dips its toe very occasionally into lowbrow humor, but in such a way that still manages to be highbrow. Would love this movie. Like the New Yorker lost its mind over this movie. (laughs) The New Yorker wrote an article about this movie and then went out and smoked pot. Oh, absolutely. Meanwhile, like the Village Voice was catching the latest John Waters production. (laughs) And just went... You guys, I just went on the cringiest date with someone whose favorite movie was Waiting for Guffman. John Waters watched this and, like, sent Christopher Guest a very nicely written, like, typed out, perfume sprayed on it letter saying, Oh, darling, it's so cute, but where are the tits? (laughs) (laughs) Darling, it's so cute, but where is the tweed? I don't understand. Where do you put it? It smells like ashes (laughs) and patchouli. And yeah, Christopher Guest has, like I said, been making the same movie more or less over and over and over for the almost 30 years since Waiting for Guffman came out at this point. So clearly, like, 
something is working. Something is working. So we have to give it Oscars. We do have to give it Oscars. I love that we had the same Oscar. Oh, well, see, I, I just in case that was the thing, I like hedged my bet and put a second one in there. No, I think that's lovely that you put a second one in there. But I think the fact that we got the same Oscar means that we should have the same Oscar. Okay, fair enough. I'm down with that. Well, I can't remember if this is the first, second, or third time this has happened, but on Cult Fiction, the the double Oscar, because it still deserves two, um, that we are going to give Waiting for Guthman is most accurate representation of high school slash community theater. Very accurate, very true, very realistic, down to the fact that no one knows what they're doing. No one knows what they're doing. We, we get several rehearsal scenes where people are just like goofing off or antagonizing one another. It's It seems like the play, nobody has their shit together until the opening night and then they just kind of wing it and make it work. Um, Bob Balaban's character is like the musical theater guy who directed all of the town's theatrical productions until Corky showed up. And is like very clearly trying to be an actual goddamn director mm-hmm. and cannot handle Corky's shit. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of strife being just present and you just kind of have to deal with it. <laughs> um, they play theater games. They play like icebreaker games, which did like take me back to doing just weird random walking in a circle and trying not to bump into each other shit in high school. Well, and it's also like... It's very emotions are high edge and the director is just going to quit just because they're on high emotions that day. And the director secretly has favorites and he'll pull them to side and he'll make notes for them, but it's just for them so they can be even better. It's very high school theater. The two actors who are, are a couple like are kind of sort of at least at least Fred Willard's character like is very clearly trying to hit on Parker Posey and failing miserably the entire time. <laughs> we talked about how Corky has to replace one of the actors opening night. That almost happened my senior year of high school where we were doing anything goes. And one of the actors um, had like a very sore throat and there was um, worry that they wouldn't be able to play the plucky sidekick to what's his face, and the oh, yeah. adult. I I barely remember anything goes. <laughs> the adult director of our high school was like cobbling together a costume for herself to go on in place of. The president of the drama club who was like gonna have to miss out. Because I have a sore throat. <laughs> a sore throat is the worst thing in high school theater. Oh no, get some lemon drops. Oh no, get some honey. Well, that's basically what happened is like you've got other like students like just pouring honey down this poor girl's throat. Like, no, you can do it, it's okay. We believe in you. We believe in you. We're gonna pray over you. This is your second to last performance in high school, and that matters. And it means something. Precisely. You know what always means something more than high school theater? Our love of Kevin Bacon. Our beautiful love. 
and deep respect for Kevin Bacon. Absolutely. Can I go first? Oh, I please go first. Okay. The magical Eugene Levy was in Club Paradise with Brian Doyle Murray, who was in JFK with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know what I just realized? As we have said in this recording, Brian Doyle Murray is in Waiting for Guffman. You didn't need Eugene Levy to Wait. get there. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Is his middle name Doyle? Yes. God damn. He is, he is the not Bill Murray. He is the mechanic dad. He is in a lot more movies than I thought he was looking at his IMDb page. But yeah, like... Like I just found the name and I was an like, extra, sure. You did an extra step you didn't need to do. I'm so mad. Well, then this isn't going to help because I um, oh, can no. do it in one. As Okay. So I mentioned this is the first mockumentary Christopher Guest directed. Uh-huh. It is not the first film that Christopher Guest directed. Oh, motherfucker. The first film Christopher Guest directed was the Kevin Bacon vehicle, The Big Picture, which is a movie about making mockumentaries, funny enough. I'm... I'm so mad... I'm so mad. If it helps, I'm sitting here going, well, what the shit did we say for Princess Bride? Because this was an option then, too. I'm mad at both of us. That's fair. That's very respectable. This this movie got us so off kilter and perplexed that it did this to us. Let's hope the next movie we watch doesn't get us this perplexed. Doesn't make us this off-kilter and perplexed. Doesn't make us this off-kilter and perplexed. I mean, one can only hope. Um, for what it's worth, Best in Show is on the list. That was the other Christopher Guest uh, mockumentary. Um, Spinal Tap is on the list as well. It's not impossible that um, we have this. However... Luck is on our side because, as with every episode of Cult Fiction, we are going to pick our next movie by pulling from the Hollywood Crypt. In that Hollywood Crypt, there are 276 films, and we are going to use the application of a random number generator to find them out. And next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching number... 273 high up in like we are nearly at the bottom of the list and 273 for our valentine's day episode is appropriately enough wrist cutters a love story 
Yay! So I have never seen this film. Oh. But you have told me I would love it. You will love it very much. It is depressing and wonderful and great and sad. So perfect thing for Valentine's Day. You know what? Yeah, it is the perfect thing for Valentine's Day. Wonderful. Okay, well, you can find Wrist Cutters A Love Story streaming on Amazon Prime and YouTube for rent. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we... The only thing I know about this movie is it has Tom Waits. So I'm going to say thirst after the great Tom Waits. And discover the hidden black hole underneath our passenger seats. On the next episode of Cult Fiction, for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel.